Episode 161 of the PJ Archive is one of the most memorable and moving interviews I've ever done. It's with the remarkable but troubled tennis starlet who became a remarkable human being, Andrea Jaeger. Andrea was the second highest ranked player in the world at the age of 16. She won the French Open mixed doubles title in 1981 with Jimmy Arias. She reached the singles final of the French Open in 1982 and of Wimbledon in 1983. A major shoulder injury at the age of 19 ended Andrea's playing career prematurely in 1985 and she went on to spend the fortune she made from tennis on helping children with cancer, creating a foundation for them in 1990 which is now known as Little Star. Among supporters of the foundation have been Nelson Mandela, Paul Newman, Cindy Crawford and John McEnroe. In 2006, Andrea became Sister Andrea, an Anglican Dominican nun. I did this interview with her less than two years later. To what extent do you feel you were pushed into becoming a tennis player as a child? I wasn't. I mean, I started at age eight because my family played and... I actually had to push them to let me go with them and play because I was so bored just watching my sister and my parents play. At nine, when I played my first tournament, my parents did not, they thought I was too young to go play in a 10 and under tournament. And I won the tournament. And then, you know, at 13, I was winning collegiate and pro tournaments. And I saw my parents counting quarters and dollars on the table from their job. And I thought, you know, I'm winning all these tournaments and these matches and we're not able to take the money, and yet we have the expenses. I remember the conversation. My management group, the agent, came over, and and he was very respectful and saying, are you sure? You know, how do you feel about this? And I'm saying, look, if I don't like it, you know, then we'll figure it out then. But it's, it's no different. I'm playing the tournament. The only difference is I will get to keep the money, and my parents can help pay expenses because we, we had to pay all my expenses to travel. What were your parents' jobs at that stage? My parents own a restaurant and lounge in Chicago. They they work seven days a week. The reason they got rid of it, and then my dad traveled with me full-time, is he he got shot at. Really? (laughs) The neighborhood changed a little bit in Chicago. And so he thought, you know, it's getting too dangerous, and, you know, I have two children and a family to raise, and so he sold it. And then... Was he badly shot? No, he, he escaped. Then we had somebody rob the place, and my dad chased him, and the person he chased said he would come back and get his kids. And so at that point, he said, you know, it's not worth it. Let me go into something. And so he moved. We moved to the suburbs. Andrea, if you could go back in time knowing what you do now, would you become a tennis pro? The only reason I would is because it, it all has gotten me here. If the foundation wouldn't have been this successful, would I have changed? You know, I never got nervous ever playing a tennis match. It, I was never overwhelmed by a situation. I beat Billie Jean King at center court at Wimbledon. I was yep. never, I don't think a 14-year-old should be on a, 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 in right. any sport. It, never. I mean, I... What was your sort of daily routine as a tennis pro? When I was on playing a tournament, I woke up in a hotel and I went for a run. I had a lot of energy then. And then I would go and train for an hour, and then I'd probably have a night match. And then I'd try to do some things that were kid-related. Like if I was in Australia, I'd go to King's Cross and talk to the runaway kids to see why they were running away. And then I'd practice a half an hour before my night match, play my night match, and you know, grew up on room service. And that was pretty much it. I love that part. The part I didn't love is I was always getting into trouble. Because every time I tried to be myself, I got in trouble. If I played tag in the L.A. Forum with the ball kids, I got yelled at to stop laughing so loud. You know, I didn't understand TV time, and so I'd always change sides without sitting down. I wasn't tired. So I was told to sit out. You know, I was always told no. Um, I tried to run for the board when I was on the circuit, and they said, no, I was too young. And I'm like, well, I'm not too young to play at 2 in the morning in a mm. match, so how could I be too young to run for the board? So I don't think the circuit was quite ready for me in that kind of aspect. And What did and didn't you like about your life as a tennis player? I loved how I was able to go to places that people read about in history books. And I was in South Africa at 13, and 
And I loved how you could go to a town and be a stranger and people would be so kind to you. And that's where I think part of the foundation work. I mean, that's why we work with kids from England and Wales, because Wimbledon was so, that people were so good to me. What didn't you like then? What were the bad points? Watching tennis change people and wondering if their souls were happy at the cost that they were paying to be number one in the world. Was yours happy at number two in the world? Um, I had to do a lot to stay at two. Hmm. <laughs> I think mine was, I didn't enjoy locker rooms. Wimbledon was nice because you could go to your flat. To, you know, I got in trouble at Wimbledon even because I would hang out in the third player's locker room because hmm. I was supposed to stay in the seated player's locker room. Yeah, I know, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I don't like it up there. You know, everyone seems to be happier in the lower players' locker room. You know, mm. they were just happy to be there. They weren't thinking about the finals or the semis or the draw or, you know, being so focused just on tennis. And so the, the lower players' locker room, they were just happy they were at Wimbledon. And, and whereas my locker room was more about, well, yeah. this is it. This Winning. Is, yeah. It's um, a, how do you feel about who you were as a child star and, and how much of that was tied up with your family relationships? I think it's very difficult to have any parent be your coach because I think you lose the parental side. And, you know, my dad was my coach, and he was a great coach. He, he was actually very talented. He could analyze a player and say, Andrea hit three balls to her forehand, then one to her backhand, she'll miss her backhand. <laughs> and I'd do that, and they'd miss the backhand. Mm. So he was very talented in that aspect, but... I mean, the whole time I was on the circuit, we lost the father-daughter relationship. And, and maybe all parents are like this, where there comes a time where you're not sure if what you want for your child is what the child wants. You know, a lot of kids in my situation would have loved to be me and have all those accolades, have all those hmm. accomplishments, and to be succeeding. And I wasn't fulfilled. I just wasn't fulfilled. You know, when I grew up in tennis, you know, people looked at me as an oddity in school. It was a little difficult. Kids threw food at me in the lunchroom and pushed me in lockers. And, you know, I was just an oddity because they'd see me playing tennis and then try, see me trying to figure out my locker combination in school. And, and then when I went on the professional tennis circuit, it wasn't as if I fit in very well because I'm beating these players. You know, mm -hmm. how much fun is that for those players? That's the part that the part I hated the most on the circuit, and I don't even like to use the word hate, but if you ask the question... The fact that you have to walk in the locker room after a match and somebody's lost. You know, I just didn't feel good about beating people, you know, because the reactions when you're in, when you're younger, sometimes when you play a sport, kids, kids learn that losing isn't okay from somebody else. They're not born that way. They're born to try hard and do your best. Do you think your discomfort with beating other players, do you think that may have been a rebellion against your dad wanting you to win all the time? No. I was playing one player, and she was crying when I was switching sides. I was up 5-0 in the first set, and she was crying. I played against four players that retired after I beat them. So it was their time to retire. But, you know, the second tournament I ever played in, I was 14 years old, in second tournament as a pro, and I beat a few seated players and one of the seated players she went in the locker room she was very nice and complimentary about my talents but then she proceeded to take out a bottle of wine and needed a corkscrew and i thought oh she's getting drunk because i beat her i have upset her and that haunted me my entire career it haunted yeah. me 10 years after i left tennis what became of her then she was a great tennis player but every time i played her i tried to give her the match because i felt so bad is she now an alcoholic, or is she still a tennis player? Or? Oh, no. <laughs> She's not an alcoholic. I mean, I don't know. I don't, speak, I don't talk to her. You know, I think it was, you know, here's an adult woman tennis player, and a 14-year-old beats you. I just felt so horrible. I felt like if someone has to get drugs because... And that's... See, that was my young interpretation. That's yeah. why I don't think a 14-year-old should be on the circuit. It might have been she has a glass of wine after every match, but she's yeah. back at her hotel. I just don't know that... I had a Swiss Army knife from my father, or my grandfather. I'm the one who gave her the corkscrew to open the bottle of wine. So we're the only people in the locker room except for the PR person. 
And I just sat there and went, you know, if this is what I'm going to have to go through every time, well, I'm, I don't want to have to deal with that all the time. But Andrew, you know, with respect, you were described as one of the original tennis brats. How fair do you think that description is? I didn't like injustice. I'm still the same way. So if I got a bad line call, I complained. There were some matches I didn't want to try as hard for whatever reason, and so... Why do you think you were so argumentative, though? You know, if you look into children, if you look inside them and there seems to be a problem, there is a problem. If I shared some things as a child that I saw and I encountered and I had to deal with, if I shared them then on the circuit, I would have thought I would have been a rat. That I didn't feel comfortable with. I didn't feel comfortable with sharing that those kind of things and so I kept it all in it's like a child who is at school and gets bullied and has problems and sees things that they don't like seeing and and it's not in a field that nurtures their soul let's put it that way you know everyone is in their right place and they're not doing anything wrong but it's just a place that's causing harm to their soul so I think there's a lot of things people didn't understand about me, and I think a lot of the way I behaved on the circuit was trying to come to terms with what I was seeing and dealing with and hearing and not wanting to be the kind of person who ratted on other people. So I was more a child who was having to process a lot of information and yet having no one to share it with. I got called a brat a couple times on the circuit, and if I would have shared in press conferences, hey, look, this is what I'm dealing with today. This is what I've dealt with last month. This is what I've got going on next week. I think people would have had a very different perspective, and I think people would have understood a lot more about me than, than what was there, and, and I just didn't really want to bring that attention on. And so for me, I you know, worked very hard and trained hard and was gritty on the court, but there's a lot more that was going on that hmm. this kid wasn't sharing. I don't know if you have children, but imagine a 14- and 19-year-old going through these experiences, beating someone on the tennis court, the players crying in the locker room, or, you know, you know, someone that, that if it's everything in their life to win that match. I've never cried from losing a match. Now, have I had tears on the court out of anger from an umpire that I thought cheated me? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> That's different. That's injustice. How do you feel about that iconic look you had as a kid with the braces and the pigtails? Well, the thing is, I kept getting criticized for things. I kept getting criticized that, like, in between points, players would get tired and they'd take the full 30 seconds, and I kind of got bored in between the points. So I'd yeah. play with my racket strings or twirl my racket, and then people made fun of me for that. They said, you can't twirl your racket. It looks disrespectful. I go... I'm sitting there doing nothing for 30 seconds. What do you want me to do? Yeah. So I started playing with my hair. I started playing with my shoestrings. They told me to quit doing that. When you're a kid, and that's the thing that I, why I went in, you know, I have all those people to thank because they never let me be who I was. And I think people love that part about me, the spunk and the spirit and the, you know, didn't want to give up. And if you break a child's spirit, you don't leave them with anything. If you take away the best parts of them, what do you leave them with? You know, I would have rather had someone, you know, help me out as a, as a kid when they saw, you know, things. I got, accused, I got accused of beating up a player on the circuit, and I never did it. Never touched the person. The person fell down, and, and I never did it. And it was a huge publicity. I was on the David Letterman show. Again, I don't want to say the name okay. because I got accused of that, and it was only because the person was trying to get money mm. from me. And later on, somebody who was in the locker room admitted, yeah, Andrea didn't come. She wasn't even near the person. She mm. didn't touch the person. They just saw her making so much money, they saw her as an opportunity. I was ridiculed in the media. So when you ask about, well, you know, you were a brat, well, Gosh, can someone come behind the scenes and defend the kid once in a while? All these things that she never did and had to encounter and had to deal with and had to watch from all these players and all these things, and she doesn't say a word. Is that being a brat, or is that... How much of a love life did you have as a tennis player? Well, and when you're 14 and 19, you don't really. I mean, I think people couldn't really relate to me. I mean, they just couldn't relate to me because I'm on TV, I'm, you know, in the newspapers, I'm, 
you know, and I was still a kid who loved, you know, all the ball boys and ball girls. We'd play Nerf football. We would go play soccer. We would go, you know, do different things, um, share comic books. So it was a very younger set of situations. And so that was never, I was too young, and I had always grown up in an older field, older field. So that was never even a... a you know, so you never had a boyfriend as a, as a youngster? It, no, it's, you know, I had friends that were boys that we did things with. There's a couple kids that we practiced together when I was younger, when I was like 12, and they were so much fun. And it was like Duke Uline and Anton Cruz. And, and I sleep over at their house. I mean, things are different now. I mean, when you're 12 back then, parents didn't have to worry about, you know, our kids going to have sex in the bedrooms. Now kids are growing up so much faster. So when I was 12, I was having sleepovers at Anton's house and Duke's house, and they would sleep over at mine, and it was fun. We'd have wake up and go play tennis and play t-ball and softball and do all these different things together. And I mean, now with kids, I mean, I take care of kids. You have to look at they grow up so much quicker. When I interviewed Annabelle Croft, she said she was very intimidated by the gay female tennis players. Did you find it intimidating? At that age, again, it's a totally different culture. I'm 42, so we're, we're talking, you know, what, how many years ago? It started being written about in the newspapers and started having things happen, and you were aware of it, and you saw it, and you, I was a kid who didn't care. I had no judgment. I still have no judgment, and I think that's, that's what God asks of you. Is As a kid, forgiveness was one of my greatest qualities and, and no judgment because, you know, I saw things on the circuit for sure, but it didn't matter to me because are they harming anyone? No. But the professional tennis era that you played in was the first to involve big money marketing and so forth. How much did that repulse you and make you turn in the other direction? Um, you know, it, it, we definitely lived a spoiled lifestyle, and I I'm got caught up in it. I mean, I would call home and say, you won't believe it. I dropped my towel just to see if they would pick it up at the end of the day, and I came back to my hotel room, and it was all neatly folded on the towel rack, and they made my bed, too. Um, you know, not things your parents want to hear from you. I think that... I wanted to make a difference in the world, and I remember talking to someone who was in the management field in, in tennis, and then we were at the L.A. Forum, and, and I was about 15, and I just looked at him, and I said, you know, we do just hit the ball across the net, and then we chase it, and mm. we're getting all this money for it. And he just kind of looked at me like, okay, so what's your problem? Mm. <laughs> and, and isn't that great? And I just thought, well, can't we be doing more with this? And, and now you see a culture where every sports team, every athlete, they have a caring nature about yeah. someone else other than themselves. But back in my era, that just didn't happen. It was more, let's get women's tennis to that next level, and then forever lives will be changed because girls can play sports. Because girls didn't even have sports in school. And my goal wasn't that. I saw also the price that players were making in order to be number one in the world. I saw the sacrifices they were making. I saw what toll and what cost that they would go to to be the best in the world. And I trained hard. I'd get up at five. I'd run. I'd you know, work hard. I'd hit thousands of tennis balls. I'd do everything hmm. that I was supposed to. I'd go to the cocktail parties and the sponsor parties, and, and I would do that, but I just wouldn't. I didn't want to ever do anything that would cost like a chip in my soul where it would mm. change my soul because I didn't want that to get so hardened for selfish reasons or for goals and that that I wouldn't be able to do what I do now because if I did become that I wouldn't be able to understand these kids or reach out or I wasn't at peace in the environment on the professional tennis circuit there were parts that disturbed me I just felt that when I went on the circuit, we were all going to be friends and, and hang out and have fun, and maybe some of us could even tie at the end of a match mm -hmm. instead of one wins and one loses. I had my perception was very different, and so when that what happened, I was a little disturbed that there wasn't more humanitarian efforts, and that was just, you know, my 
lack of understanding that this is an individual sport. This is a competitive sport. Everyone's out for blood, and, you know, you need to have a killer instinct, and coaches kept trying to tell me that. Well, it was well known that you had a stormy relationship with your father. What, why was that, and what did you argue about? He was German-bred and very strict and disciplined, and if I did something wrong, you know, he wanted to make sure I wouldn't do it wrong twice. Parents growing up in Germany, you know, in that era had a different form of discipline. He had really good morals and values in a lot of different areas, and then, you know, he had a ways of dealing with discipline that perhaps isn't something that I would choose or other people would choose, but that would be it. But my dad was a lot easier to deal with than other people on the circuit. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't believe in his choices and behavior. I don't believe you should hit a child. I don't believe, you know, if, and each parent is different. They have that right. He grew up that way. He grew up being beaten by a belt. He wanted to teach me morals and values. I learned those from God. I didn't need to learn them from a beating. You know, I've worked with children for 22 years and even longer, and it's about giving unconditional love. You can teach more yeah. unconditional love. That's what reaches a child. Did you ever end up badly injured from a beating? Um, I, I would say there, there are times I was, you know, not as, Spunky <laughs> the moment after, but I think because a, a punch from a boxer must be serious damage. Yeah, it, but he really, it was more, you know, don't talk back to me. It wasn't if you didn't win a match. Quite a few female tennis players since have had difficult relationships with their dads. I mean, Mary Pierce and Yelena Dokic, to name just two. I know Mary Pierce. I mean, I, I was around her and. She would get in trouble for things tennis-related. Hmm. I got things more with just life-related. You know, my dad was trying to teach me life lessons, how he learned them. And it wasn't, gosh, if I lost a match, I was going to get beaten up. That never happened. It yeah. was if I did something he felt needed to be taught this way. He didn't use unconditional love. He used that. How affectionate was he towards you as a child? He wasn't a very affectionate man. I, I wouldn't call him... I mean, my family wasn't overly affectionate. After your career ended, did you go into therapy? No. <laughs> or do you think your work was the best therapy you could have had? No. I, I mean, see, you have to understand, I had, I had the best childhood in the world because I knew God was there for me all the time. And I, and I had this belief before. My dad, my dad didn't really start his discipline until, until I started playing tournaments. And I already had my relationship with God before I got in trouble the first time with my dad. You know, so I already had this great relationship. So I knew that no matter what happened in my life, I had joy in my heart and I had a purpose. I was supposed to go help kids that were sick in a hospital. Were you scared of your father? No. I don't know if I've ever been scared of anything. I mean, if I did something wrong, I'd get in trouble with with my father but I'm talking about wrong things I mean yeah. I my 83 Wimbledon I got in a fight with my father and I did say something to him that you just shouldn't say to your father what happened was I, I dove for a ball in one of my earlier rounds it was on court two and I dove for a ball because I loved diving on grass because it was so fun and my yeah. thumb got caught in my racket and I didn't even need to dive for the ball the ball was right there and, but I dove anyway because I thought it would be fun and I sprained my thumb so I didn't practice as much during, that was like my first or second round. And I didn't practice as much because I had to change my grip a little bit because my, you know, I had a sprained thumb. So my dad was, you know, not so pleased with that, but he just said, you know, you know you didn't have to die for that ball. And I said, I know, I just wanted to. And he goes, now look, you've sprained your thumb. And, and I'm like, well, you know, so what? You know, I can play easy like this anyway. I said, I just don't want to practice a lot because I don't want to make it more sore. So now I'm in the finals of Wimbledon, and I beat Billie Jean in the semis, she said something in the locker room that, you know, wasn't necessarily the kindest thing. And so we were going out on center court, and they hand you a towel, and the lady said, well, Miss Yeager, would you like your towel? And I took it, in, and then they said, Miss King, would you like your towel? And she said, no, I won't need one. I'm not going to sweat in this match. And she didn't mean it mean towards me. She was just trying to politely say, but I heard it, because we we're walking right next to each other, and I thought... You know, if she would have handed me the towel and say, hey, Andrea, do you want an extra? I would have given her the match. But she just, you know, I don't get intimidated by those things. 
and I God. thought, now I have to try hard. And so I went out and did at Beater 6161, and so was playing really well, you know, at Wimbledon, and had beaten Martina on grass before, and had beaten Martina before, and, and knew that, you know, Martina, that she had more pressure on her, because, you know, she's past Wimbledon champ, and I knew if I started really well that I could maybe rattle her a little bit in terms of maybe she'd get nervous. And um, it was kind of afternoon to evening before the finals, and I was upstairs, and my dad came up, and he just made a couple comments about, you know, you haven't practiced enough this tournament, and and then he said, you know, I did have a sprint thumb, and please, let's not go into this. And then he saw this empty potato chip bag that was in my room, and I wasn't supposed to have... And so he's like, what is that? And I go, nothing, you know. And so he saw it, and I thought he went downstairs, and I said a swear word. It wasn't to him. I didn't say you. I just said the word. And, you know, he didn't like me doing that. And a father and a parent shouldn't. But I was like, I was so not in the mood to get in trouble for the potato chips. He heard it, and he was so mad. And he was going to discipline me. And What does give me discipline mean? You'd know, have been smacked? Yeah. And I just didn't feel like it. And so I ran out um, and I went to Martinez because I knew she was right next door to get a cab. And, and I knew he wouldn't do anything outside in public. And so mm. I just ran and knocked on the door and kept ringing the door, ringing the door like really fast because, you know, I was upset. Finally, someone came. And so I mm. went up the, the stairs and then said, look, can I just use your phone? I, I need to call a taxi. And so her trainer was there, and she was getting out the, the yellow pages, the phone book, and Martina was sitting to the right, and she was in this, like, little living room area, and her chair was facing towards the living room, not me. But she turned and looked at me, and I was crying. I was a little upset. I had stopped at that point, but you could kind of tell, you know, I wasn't coming to get a cab to pick up my Indian food you know, I was upset and getting away from trouble, from a problem. And so that was really obvious. And so she looked at me and then turned back and mm. looked straight forward. And that bothered me because I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, that's right. We're playing in the finals <laughs> tomorrow. And yeah. she's in her killer instinct, focus on the match mode. <laughs> and I've just broken her concentration. And, and I just felt so badly. I'm like, why didn't I knock on someone else's door? But she did help you then, didn't she? No. She oh. didn't get out of her chair. And so her trainer that was there went and got the phone book and made oh. a call, and I went in the kitchen right away, and Martina never came over. She never left her chair. She never turned back and looked at me. But I felt so badly that I interrupted her preparation for her final that I just thought, you know, it's not fair. I can't go out and try the next day because I affected her. I've changed her routine. Oh. And I may have affected her where she's going to go soft because she feels bad because, you know, in, in my mind I thought, oh, Martina thinks I've just gotten beaten up and now she's going to feel bad for me. And maybe she feels like she can't try so hard because I have a tougher life maybe than her. That was in my mindset. And so I thought... I can't do it. I, you know, I, I have to, obviously, if she would have been okay, she would have come over and said, Andrew, don't worry about it. We'll be fine tomorrow. We're going to be, you know, everything's going to be fine. And, and so I left, got in a cab, and I went to someone's flat of the person that I beat who had that bottle of wine, and, okay. and she wasn't there. I probably didn't get back till late. So you late. did go back to your dad's place? Oh, I did. I, I mean, I had to sleep somewhere. And then the next day I got up, and... I wasn't going to go warm up because I thought if I don't warm up, then I'll start really slow, and then Martina will gain confidence because she'll start really well. Because I knew if I started well, you know, that would be an advantage for me. But if she started well, she'd build her confidence and she'd be fine. So I didn't arrange a warm-up. I didn't arrange for anyone. I pretended to, I went and walked to the practice courts, and my dad goes, you didn't arrange a warm-up? And I said, no. I understood that Martina helped you the night before, and as a return favor, you gave her the match. Yeah. The only reason I've ever said this is two or three years ago, a woman reporter called me up from England and said, you know, I've watched your matches, and I've seen you beat Martina, and I saw you beat Billie Jean. You didn't try in your finals, did you? And she asked me the question. And I thought, you know, this lady went and watched all these matches. i I'm, I got to tell her, yeah, I didn't try, because hmm. I didn't. And... 
I didn't feel fair that she did all that research and all that work, and then she's just going to have someone say it. To, who's going to care? 17 years later, it doesn't take away from Martina's win. It doesn't take away from anything. Have you spoken to Martina about it since? Well, so the lady wrote something, I think, and I sent an email to Martina. This is, I don't know, three years ago, and I said, look, this lady asked, and I explained to her it doesn't take away from your win. It doesn't explain, you know, it doesn't take away from anything, but, you know, she knew. I'm not going to lie. She knew. Did Martina reply to that? No. And so she's been asked. And she's been asked, you know, do you feel like... And she's in a really, really awkward position because if she says, yes, I know Andrew didn't try, they're going to say, why? And where does she go from there? Oh, well, she was afraid her father was going to hurt her that night or she was, you know, I mean, where does she go with it? There's nowhere for her to go that feels good. You know, no, I didn't get out of my chair. But I knew my trainer was helping her and getting her a taxi. But where do you go with that? You can't go anywhere and feel good. I understand that and I respect it. And so that's why I've never, I never told anyone because it never mattered. You know, it was she deserved the win. She won the match. It's, there's no asterisk next to her name. So are you saying you did gift Martina the match or you didn't? I didn't try. Yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't try. I couldn't because it wasn't because she was nice to me. I, I hadn't told anybody that she didn't get out of her chair. She didn't turn. But... The first part of the story is true, that I felt I affected her. Her preparation for that final, in her mind, didn't include Andrea coming over needing help and being in trouble. That, did, that wasn't her, her mental preparation, so I broke her mental preparation. Right. And, you know, this is a Wimbledon final. And so her mental preparation is to have that killer instinct, to not, to be tough, to walk out there and beat this person and... And I broke that in her. When she turned and looked at me, she knew exactly what had happened. But, you know, her goal in life was to be the best women tennis player in the world. And I don't want to interfere with that. But how do you feel now about throwing that final, particularly knowing that she went on to win a record number of Wimbledon singles titles? For me, morally, if I won that match, I would have had the asterisk because she wouldn't have... Do you think she'd have told the press that you disturbed her the day before? Yeah, I disturbed her the day before, and I couldn't guarantee. She didn't come up to me and say, this will not affect my performance tomorrow. She didn't have to. But hmm. the thing is, I couldn't guarantee that she wouldn't be affected by that the next day. And See, I put my feelings on her. That's who I am. That's why I run a children's cancer foundation. Yeah. You know, I understand pain and suffering of others. And I'm not saying she didn't, but... She was more focused on what she needed to do, her task at hand. But if you could go back to that time now, would you try harder? Would you try and win it? Do you regret not having won it? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. I wouldn't have said that word. I wouldn't have mumbled that word because it's just you don't do that to your father. <laughs> no right. matter how, you know, you get in trouble. I was running out with my wallet and my bra. I said, I'm mm. so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. You know, he wanted to make sure I wouldn't forget that and never do it again. I had never done it. He wouldn't have beaten you that badly that night because you had the finals to play the next day. And presumably he wanted you to win. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to go there. Right. <laughs> but I'm not going to go there on that question. Andrea, had you always given your utmost in your tennis matches, how many more titles do you think you'd have won, particularly Grand Slams? Um, Grand Slams, twice at the French, once at the Australian, once in the semis of the French, once at the finals of the French, once in the, I think it was semis Australian, it was Australian, um, once finals of Wimbledon and the quarters at Wimbledon. Those are just the Grand Slams, but... I prefer to use the word, those are the ones that I didn't try fully. Right. Now, am I saying that if I would have tried fully, would I have won? I don't have that answer. Okay. So I'm not saying just because I would have tried, I would have won. I'm just saying those are the ones I didn't try fully okay. for moral reasons, for a reason that each of those episodes were, and none had to do with my father. None of the other ones had to do with my father. They had to do with situations with other players. And I just felt, you know here just here how hard was it to watch tennis after your career ended knowing you could have done better if you'd really tried it never bothered me i've never once gone gosh i wish i would have 
tried in that match. I, I had a reason. I had, I had a reason that I felt comfortable with. I didn't feel like in my match against Martina, you know, in the first set I wasn't trying at all. I wasn't even warmed up. And, and I thought, oh, my gosh, TV time and people pay tickets. I better start trying more in the second set. And so I did. So people would have a little bit more of a match and the commercials could come in. But I, you know, the only thing I, I do, I feel bad in the sense of, you know, people pay to have the best performances. Yeah. But yeah. in my circumstance, how I look at it is, you know what, there was no safety standards in place. There was no policies in place. There were things happening that affected my morals and values. Because of me being sensitive to how I was as a, as a person, I didn't feel comfortable performing at the top of my game in these particular occasions I had a moral reason it wasn't because I was bored it wasn't because I was burnt out it wasn't because I hated tennis a circumstance happened in each of those occasions where it would have haunted me I wouldn't have been able to look in the mirror the next day if I would have won that match because you were always labeled a burnout case do you feel that no, was wrong I mean that bothered me I mean I, you know sitting in a hospital room having shoulder surgeries and being allergic you know they they couldn't even give me pain medication because I was I was allergic to it it's not fun to be no. you know called something you're not and I just don't think that if you ask other players if you go back in time would you have behaved the same way I think a lot of players would have said no Chris Everett and I went and did a hospital program and Chris and I were, did not have good situations on the circuit at all. When I was 15, I beat her the first time, and she came up to me in the locker room. I was the only person in the locker room, and she said, now that you beat me, will your dad let us be friends? Mm. And I said, this has nothing to do with my dad. I don't want to be your friend. And I beat her three times in a row, and, and we had a really, you know, there was just some things that weren't right. And so all of a sudden last year, I said, you know what, I'm going to, call her up and see if she wants to do a hospital visit together because I called her up and she goes you know Andrew we need to talk I'm, I apologize I didn't know at the time you know everybody else wanted to be number one in the world you just wanted to help people you wanted us you know to help people that you know didn't have the life we had and, and you were made differently. Andrew, when your career ended at 1920, how much of a worry was that? Or did you already know that you wanted to spend the rest of your life doing charity work? Well, I knew that it, I knew that from my first hospital visit. My first children's hospital visit was when I was a teenager on the circuit. I didn't have my driver's license yet, so it was either right before my 16th birthday or right after. And, and I went to a children's hospital. I was playing on the East Coast and passed a toy store, bought some toys, took yeah. them to the hospital, and saw these kids. There was three kids in the playroom, and then I went to other rooms, and and these kids had an appreciation of life that I didn't really see on the circuit. This boy lost his hands from a disease. They had to amputate his hands. Another girl was attached to an IV pole. Another girl had cancer. And the boy challenged me in video games, and we played video games and had a great time, and and I admired how he had this appreciation for life and, you know, how people applauded me for what I could do with my hands. And this child has no one applauding him. And he really loved life. And the girl was using the IV pole, which was this huge medical apparatus. She was using it as her dance partner. And the other girl, I had long pigtails and braces and looked at me as if she had no hair. And she was like, wow, you have to brush yours and wash yours and take care of it. Yeah. And so it was that moment that I said, wow, these, these children understand life, like life in full, the, the appreciation that you have today, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to enjoy it, or are you going to be angry about, you know, the cards you've been dealt? And I knew God didn't arrange for me to be number one in the world. He arranged for me to help kids. And so when I was in that hospital environment, I, I said to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to help kids that are stuck in the hospital. I'm going to help kids with cancer. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And then when I was in New York playing at Madison Square Garden, I read in the New York Times that a few kids um, had committed suicide in, in high school and yeah. that they were really worried about cluster suicides and they yeah. were grieving. This whole town was grieving and White Plains is near New York City. And so I read about this in the newspaper and I had a day off. I didn't have a match the next day and I thought, I'm going to call the school and see if I can go visit these kids. And called up the school and they were so excited and they said we'd love to have you come talk to the kids and the families and so I arranged transportation went to White Plains 
spent the whole day with these kids and student council and parents and videoing messages where they could play for kids because I'm their age, you know, and I'm yeah. talking about how, you know, yeah, there's going to be ups and downs in life, but you can get through it. And, and so went back to my room, and then the next day, one of the top players and the person who was in charge of public relations on the circuit called me into a, a room, and I thought, wow, did I complain about a line call too much? I didn't <laughs> know what, what would happen. And so I went in there, and, and they threw the New York Times at me, and it hit me in the chest, and they said, you need to quit doing this. What are you doing? Yeah. And I went, what? And I looked in, and one of the parents worked for the New York Times as a photographer, and he had yeah. taken a picture and put a caption and said, you know, Teenage Sensation came out um, to help our kids. And what a nice thing that was. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, these kids are struggling. And, you know, a few of them had committed suicide. We need to go help them. And they looked at me and said, you're making us look bad. You need yeah. to quit doing this. You can't help these kids. And, and I had gone through a lot of things on the circuit, which, you know, I just felt was a little bit of um, injustice. Yeah. And a little bit of, you know, I understand we're all competitive. And I understand we're all in an individual sport but you know maybe we can all get to the other side of the road without kicking each other down getting there uh, i always had this faith and i always had this relationship with god and felt led by god and and even when after that story i told you in in white plains where people weren't very happy with yeah. me in new york city after i left that hotel room i asked god i said look i think i'm i'm done here if you're okay with it you know i know I have responsibilities and contracts, but I would like to do something else with you. I'd like to go help these kids, and if and if you're ready for me to do that, let's go do that. And if if not, that's okay. I'll keep doing this, but I'm ready to go do something else now. And the next year, I got injured, so it was very interesting. I was at the French Open, my shoulder popped, yeah, and I had seven yeah. surgeries. But you know, I did put a request into God and say, "Okay, I'm ready to do something else now. Can we go help the kids?" How many years has the foundation been going, and how many children has it cared for in that time? Well, we received, what, in the United States, you get what's called your 501c3, your nonprofit status, and that came on June 4th, 1990, which June 4th is my birthday, and before that, there was four years of research that went in, which was programs for children with cancer, but the difference is when someone donated from 1990 on, then there was actually a tax write-off. They actually got a tax benefit. So when the four years were happening, I really wanted to do some research and figure out, okay, what specifically do we want to do? How do we want to help children, or how do I want to? And so programs were actually running. I just wasn't getting any credit for my donations or my giving of funds to that. And, and the reason I put so much research in is because I just thought, gosh, there's a lot of great programs out there. There's great, you know, wish programs. There's great one-day programs where, you know, kids can get things. But what what is missing? What's out there? And part of that realization of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to help in the field was talking to families and volunteering at hospitals and, and going around and, and really seeing what had long-term impact on these kids. So that was really educational because when I was – in the Moffitt Cancer Center and I was volunteering there, I'd see the kids, and this is 20 years ago, I'd see the kids actually were holding on for Christmas. And then after Christmas came, you know, there was more situations of kids that would pass away. And then I would talk to families um, and ask, well, you know, what kind of things are you looking for if a foundation or a program came about? And what a lot of them said was that they like the relationships that once they go in a hospital, a lot of times they have to travel or go out of state yeah. to go get treatment, and that all of a sudden relationships change, that kids might be scared in the regular junior high or high school environment or if they're in a new neighborhood, that they don't necessarily have relationships. And so that's where it was decided to do long-term care, where we send birthday gifts or and cards out, we send holiday care packages out. So. Things are coming throughout the year. It's not one day or one moment, and then that's all there is. We send newsletters out. We have opportunities where we continue to do things in other cities. What exactly does it do? What, is, what are its aims, and how does someone qualify to come within its care? Well, 
Our mission is to improve the quality of life for children with cancer and children in need worldwide. And so what we usually work with and what we've done in the last 18 years is work with hospitals. Goodness, we work with so many different hospitals. Great Ormond Street Hospital we've worked with. We've worked with um, hospitals in Wales and, and then hospitals all throughout the U.S. Most major cities in the United States have a children's hospital. So we've either visited them from before, have relationships with them from before, and then we work with the doctors, social workers, child life specialists, and we'll share with them when we have a session or when we would like to do a program. And it's all at no cost to to families, but it's also no cost to hospitals as well. And then we just set up a program. We have a, a lot of different programs within the foundation, some for kids who have come through say, a camp-like session, if they're older, they can come back as counselors or ambassadors. We have family retreat programs. We also have college scholarships. We have a lot of kids now in the college scholarship program because kids are living longer with cancer. Is it like a traveling charity almost? I thought it was like based in a particular place and there was a, a home where they all yeah, stayed. Yeah, we do do that. We do have that in Colorado where we have a facility and kids come there and they come for a week and go horseback riding and white water rafting and play tennis and have talent shows and rap sessions and arts and crafts. And in the winter we do a lot of different activities as well. But some kids are not well enough to travel and so some can get on a plane and physically go somewhere and do activities and then others can't others may be able to leave the hospital environment and stay in a a hotel where we'll run a certain program we've run those in LA San Diego Miami Chicago New York City and those are for kids who can't necessarily get on a plane they're well enough to leave the hospital environment for a few days and for instance one will run in um, New York. He'll stay with us for five days to a week, and we'll do different things. We might go to the U.S. Open tennis matches, and from the local toy store, Toys R Us, will open their doors early for us. So it's oh. just like a special shopping spree for the kids that we have. Yeah. Um, we'll go to restaurants, and and the whole thing is to to get these kids into an environment, a peer group that's similar to what they're going through. How many children do you reckon have passed through your care? Well, now we reach about 4,000 children a year. It certainly wasn't like that the first few years, first probably even 10 years, because our groups, we do different groups, and some programs might be a hospital program where kids can't even leave the hospital, and we reach, you know, 120 children during that program. So at the beginning, the one thing that we really tried to focus on is not doing like the numbers because we didn't that was the other thing that family said is family said is you know we were known more as the child or the patient in room 12 or the statistics of how many kids die of a certain type of cancer and so when kids would arrive into our program we would never say you're number 422 number (laughs) 6,712 so at the beginning we didn't we had smaller groups we didn't you know funding i mean we're still in need of funding every day i mean we're still looking for you know how do we pay our bills tomorrow um it's still that same kind of thing how often do you hold fundraising events and how many of those are tennis related we used to do a lot more tennis related programs fundraiser type of things the beginning the first person who ever donated uh, i mean other than when i gave um, money myself was john mackinac that was a really big Step. I mean, I was sending grant requests out and, you know, going to the mailbox and talking to the gentleman saying, look, you know, Mr. Postmaster, you're not delivering my mail. I'm <laughs> sending out all these things and nothing's coming back. And he said, "Miss Yeager, we're delivering everything. You're just not getting any mail. You know, those first few years were really difficult because we sent out grant requests. No one knew who we were and we wouldn't receive any donations. And then I was watching a program on... ESPN and it had John McEnroe on and I had already left the circuit and had a couple shoulder surgeries and and someone asked him you know you do a charity and yet you don't let anyone know you help kids and you don't tell Mm. anyone and why is that and I thought wow I never knew John McEnroe like this so (laughs) I uh, got his home phone number called him up and and I knew him since I was 12 years old and I had you know, seen him, obviously, we played Grand Slams, we played mixed double charity events together, so he obviously knew who I was, knew I was injured, and, but at this point, I was 
you know, isolated from tennis. Once I left tennis, a lot of people, you know, thought, you know, I was even told by some people, look, you'll never amount to anything. You, that's it. Your contribution to society and to life is over. All you'll ever be was a tennis player, and now you're not that anymore. Look at you now. Yeah, and so, so I had a lot of that. So it wasn't as if there was this big, you know, oh, look, there's Andrea. It was never like that. I was, you know, just all of a sudden removed, and then it was just a very different circumstance. And then Christmas Day... Um, I received a check from him to sponsor one of our programs, and he's been helping kids ever since. I mean, he continues to help us. And Andrew, how true are reports that you put all your tennis earnings into starting the foundation? Oh, true. I mean, I, I don't have any of it left. There was one point where I kept $100 just in case if we needed to take the kids to McDonald's, and then we <laughs> needed the $100. <laughs> so how much, how much was it you put into the foundation? Um, all total, what I've given to help others has been millions. It's been everything that I had. And, and so I had enough where I didn't have to ever work again. When I was walking down the street in Aspen, one of the players that I grew up with came up to me and said, you know, I heard you gave all your money away to help these kids. And I said, yes. You know, I was hoping they were going to donate. I was so excited. I was like, yes, we got a sponsor. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, that's stupid. The kids are going to die anyway and you'll end up broke. And I just thought, so, you know, there was this whole disconnection of people understanding yeah. it. And my family went through that. See, you have to understand, when I was on the circuit, I had millions of dollars. You know, I had a Mercedes Benz at 17. Who needs a Mercedes Benz at 17? <laughs> I sold my Mercedes when I was on the circuit. And I took all the money and I bought toys for kids at hospitals, I gave money away, and I, I came back with a license plate and walked in my parents' house, and they said, I think I was 19 or 20, and they said, well, what are you doing? Where's your car? Mm. And I said, I sold it. And I said, and I went to the hospital, and I did this, and I did mm. this, and, and they, were, they were in shock. They were okay. so appalled, and they thought I was joking. For six yeah. months, they thought I was joking. My dad said to me, look, Andrew, if, if you keep playing... You will never have to work again a day in your life. If mm. you don't give this money away, you won't have to have a 9-to-5 job and mm -hmm. struggle. And I said, Dad, I have a 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. job, and I love it. Mm. Isn't that what it's supposed to be about? And so he, you know, my parents had a hard time, too, because yeah. you know, their whole life was about bringing me into professional tennis and seeing how great I was, and then, you know, their life was connected to that. And finally, after about, I don't know, seven, eight years of programs, I got tired of hearing some of their thoughts, like, mm. what are you doing? People are laughing at you. <laughs> mm. And I said, you know what? Just come. You can come see a session. And so they came to a session, and at the talent show and award ceremonies, my dad got up. It's the, only, the second time I've ever seen him cry. The first time was when I was injured. I <laughs> couldn't play anymore. <laughs> and then... This time when he actually got up at award ceremony and started crying, and he said, you know, Andrea, I was always about, you know, wanting you to get that next tennis trophy, and I see here with what you're doing, nothing compares to this, and I'm so proud of you, and I'm so proud of all these kids, and he just started crying, and all the kids started crying. And, <laughs> and Did, I you? Did you cry? You know, I looked at him. And I didn't because it was, I was so surprised. So amazed. Wait a minute, is that my dad? <laughs> and, so, and he looked so happy. It was like, you know, when I've played tennis tournaments, I've seen him after, and he's so proud of me, but then we're back to the chalkboard, you know? Yep, and, yep. and this was more something he went through. And after the word ceremony, he was crying, and I was like, Dad, I didn't realize you'd be so touched <laughs> by this experience. And... So did he then give you the hug that he didn't give you as yeah. a kid? Oh, yeah, he gave me a hug and was bawling his eyes out. <laughs> just... Did he ever apologize? Yeah, when he came to see what we were doing with the kids. I said, so, Dad, this is why your Christmas presents have been getting smaller. I've been helping these kids. He, he goes, they don't look like they're dying. And I said, because they're not. They're living. They're right here. They're here with us now. And, and I said, that's the thing about being a kid. All you have to do is have someone understand you. 
and it's about unconditional love and it's not about what you want to receive it's about them knowing they're safe around you and having fun that you're there regardless so but he did he's he goes i'm sorry i didn't <laughs> realize you know this is he actually said this is what you were born to do and i said yeah i said see so the trophies don't really matter anymore and he said no they don't and he goes he goes i'm sorry i didn't understand that then and i said that's okay we're having fun here that's all that matters and he just said you know i'm really proud of you there's some things i see here that i never taught you you've learned on your own and i said yeah and and i go but these kids teach too if people just want to listen if they want to take the time to help a kid if they just want to take time with a child they will learn more than any trophy in the world when did you start to take religion seriously and how did you decide which of the many religions to follow i don't know if i ever took religion seriously i took god seriously i took faith seriously uh, I didn't know anything about religion, but I knew about God, and I knew that he loved me, and I knew that we had a relationship, and I was to honor what he's given me as, as responsibility. Even as a child, I knew that. I knew that morally he teaches right from wrong, and so to try to figure that out, and you know, a lot of times I didn't get it right, but I knew that he'd teach me along the way. And so my religion was more of a personal relationship that was based upon faith and love for a God that I knew existed. So when did you first contemplate becoming a nun? Well, I received a degree, an associate degree in ministry training and theology about six years ago. And so what happened was... How did your friends and family react when you said you wanted to become a nun? Um, I never said it. I never said that. It, it's to me, what I entered in was a Dominican sister program. And all the people that are close to me know that I do what I feel called to, and I do what I feel called to by God. And so they knew that the foundation was part of that. They knew that my studies were part of that. These children are dealing in what they call their end-of-life issues, and so I had a responsibility to study and to learn more and to, when someone asks me a question and says, you know, where do I go, um, I want to have as much of a full answer that I can have as possible. So I've been studying for, you know, 20 years. I've been going to conferences. I've been, you know, really immersing myself in all different types of ways that people profess their faith and study religion. And, and so entering a Dominican Sisterhood program, to me, was just another natural course of path where it was, well, I'm dedicated to service. I'm dedicated to helping the poor, the sick, and the hungry. And I wasn't going to tell anyone. I really wasn't going to tell anyone. And then People Magazine happened to call, and they actually um, contacted me about um, Chris Everett was getting divorced. And they said, oh, did you know? And, you know, do you know the kids? And how's she doing? Is she okay? Because I knew this reporter for 15 years. And I didn't know about it. And, you know, we just chatted about that. And she goes, so what's new with you? And I had just graduated like a week prior and I didn't say anything, and I, but I got her email address, and I thought, you know, if God wanted me to do this, maybe he wanted me to share it with people. I don't want to slap him in the face and try to be ashamed of this or hide it. And so I told her, look, I've entered this Dominican sisterhood, and they said, oh, we'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> so I really had no intention of, my mom hadn't known at that point. I told Cindy Crawford, because she's a, a really close friend, and I yeah. knew she had a good pulse on the world on how how the world would react, you know, in terms of would people still donate, would people still understand, would I be made fun of, you know, I just wanted to see what her thought process was, because I had gone through so much in my life, and a lot of it had been, you know, in ridicule, even in goodness, mm -hmm. when I'm starting the foundation, you know, when I, that person and husband said that to me, because, you know, it's, it's something that's a little different, and yeah, the order of course. I entered is a little different, you don't have to enter a convent or a monastery, you can continue your work you can so things have changed a bit they're trying to get more people into faith-oriented and religious-oriented programs and give service where you know they've been losing people aren't young anymore and just flocking into the industry or the field 
so they're having to gravitate towards another demographic. Can you just and, explain? I'm a bit confused. I thought you had, like, joined a convent. And, and no, no, see, I don't have to live in a convent. See, that's, that's the thing where the order I originally entered, they don't have a mother house, so they don't have a monastery or a, a convent. And that's one of the reasons where I thought, okay, this, this program will work. And there are actually programs like that all around the world where what they're trying to do is get people in this kind of partnership and this kind of field to get out in the world so it's a mutual sharing. And How do you survive without money then, Andrea? I do. I get paid by the foundation. I'm oh, not, okay. Yeah, right. I get paid by the foundation. I'm in this sister program. You're allowed to have a checking account. You know, like even in the church, they say give 10%. And my usually is I keep 10% to pay my bills, and then right. I give 90%. And so it's just a little bit of a different... Have you ever come close to getting married or having children? When I started the foundation, I was still really young. I mean, I started research at 19 of doing, you know, as soon as I was injured, it was like, okay, got to figure out how to do this. And I thought one day, wouldn't it be great if I could <laughs> marry an oncologist and then he could help us for free? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I know people can do this life and have a great marriage and a great relationship and have great partnerships, and they do that. They can balance all that. But my devotion, it's God comes first. The foundation is next with the kids. And so anything that comes thereafter would be thereafter. And if I had my own children, you know, children should be first in your life. And I couldn't do that with my own. You know, here God is, you know, first. And that would they, they would understand. But then I've got all these thousands of children and this foundation to run. And, and if a donor is in India and said, hey, I'll, I'll donate to you, but you have to fly over here at 2 a.m., I'm going to get on a plane at 2 a.m. But do you get lonely? No, I've never been lonely a day in my life. I have such fullness in what I do, and, and it's not all work. I mean, it's, you know, when you see kids laughing and enjoying, and uh, I live in Colorado where the mountains, I've lived here for 20 years, where the mountains are so beautiful that, you know, there's this therapeutic value of just being in clean air and nature and, and all that. And then I have such fun with the people I work with. So there's a group of people that are so extraordinarily gifted in helping children so there's this commonality it's what i didn't have on the circuit you know we all were great at tennis on the tennis yeah. circuit but were we all great at what i wanted us all to be great in no and and so you know for for chris martina was great for her because she, it pushed her to be a better tennis player and yeah. billy jean made all of us reach higher goals mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I wanted to go into a service field. <laughs> I wanted to be a, mm. you know, I didn't know what a humanitarian was, but I wanted to be the person that sacrificed themselves to help others. How was your relationship with your dad in his last years? It was probably about seven years after he was saddened. Both my parents were very saddened that they felt like they disappointed me because then I had to go through all these surgeries. It's like, wow, if we didn't have her play tennis, she wouldn't have had these surgeries and she's going through all this pain she can't lift her arm and, and I said dad this is just part of it you know I kept saying it's fine it's just mm. part of life and then I moved to Colorado in 89 and he probably came out to the first program in 97 or 98 and then when he saw what we were doing he just was like oh can I help can I help mm. I can teach him tennis I go dad if you teach him tennis they can't really run. They're not going to Wimbledon, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he laughed, and um, he goes, but I can show them their grip. I go, yes, you can show them their grip. So he would come out every summer and help us with the kids. He was still with my mom, and then he, he was traveling in Germany visiting relatives and fell down on a table, and they rushed him in, and he had a brain tumor. And so they, his quality of life, you know, last two years were not very good quality of life, and I was telling him about God and how, you know, he'll, God will be there with him and Jesus and the angels and just sharing this whole thing. And and he said to me, Andrew, do you remember when you were 12, I took you to the side of the road, there was a raccoon there and it was dead. And I told you, this is what happens to you when you die. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. And I said, okay, yeah, I remember that. And this is when he was sick. 
And he goes, it's okay for me not to have anything else. He goes, I had you and Susie. I had two children who have grown up and are great children, and I'm so proud of both of you, and so I don't need anything else. And he goes, I'm just going to be like that raccoon at the side of the road, dead. And I go, Dad, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I go, I remember you saying that, but I didn't listen to you and I didn't believe you. And I said, so here's the deal. <laughs> I started talking all about, you know, God. And I go, look, we've got all these kids that you've helped that are going to see you up there. Were you with him when he passed away? No, I wasn't. He passed away in Germany. He passed away two years ago from yep. a brain tumor. I just finished writing a book. It was called First Service, Following God's Calling and Finding Life's Purpose. Mm -hmm. And the day I finished the manuscript, he passed away. Here's someone who lived till he was, I think, 71. He had complete peace when he passed away. He was so proud of his children. He loved his wife. And he felt like, you know, he, he learned so much from the kids that he was able to be around from the foundation. And so he feel like he, you know, came full circle. You know, it's something where, you know, I'll see him again one day. Andrea, when you do leave this planet, how do you want people to remember you? As a voice for the children. My life was so much easier before I had a gift of tennis. I trained hard. I won matches. People applauded me and loved watching me play. I got all this money and commercials and praise, and it wasn't fulfilling because it just didn't make me feel good to beat people and then be rewarded mm. for that. I rather would just, you know, unconditional love is when you give someone something and you expect nothing in return. Mm. And so when I went into this field, I was expecting nothing, but I knew this was my purpose. I knew I was called for it. There's no way I would have been able to handle what I've seen with these children if, mm. I, if God didn't call me to this. I mean, there's just no way I could be great at this. Do you think you'll always be a nun now? Will I always be a sister? Yes. Right. I believe so. I mean, I believe it's something that I don't know why I was asked and called to it, but I just became sensitive to how people feel and the pain and sufferings, and that's become an advantage in what I do now because I can reach kids. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to even say anything, and I know how they're feeling. What you've achieved through this charity work, you know, obviously has been truly fantastic, but how has it made you feel as a person compared to your time as a tennis star? For me, I mean, each person is different. I can't compare anything to a tennis trophy because if, you, if you've brought joy to a child, if you've brought laughter to a child, if you've protected a child in their need of pain and suffering and difficulty, if you've lended a hand and you know, put them under your wing, there, for me, there's nothing that compares. There really isn't. And and maybe there was a part of me on the circuit where I wish someone did that for me. I wish someone took me under their arm and said, hey, look, you're great at this sport and you're talented, but I'm going to help teach you about life, not just about tennis. This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. I hope you've enjoyed hearing my 2008 interview with the extraordinary Andrea Yeager. If you'd like to learn more about her foundation, the website is littlestar.org. And if you'd like to comment on this or any of my other interviews in the PJ Archive, you can find me on Twitter, at PeterJonathanR2. You're very welcome to follow me on there. <laughs>